Cashflow Diary Podcast, episode 322. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Cashflow Diary Podcast. The podcast that teaches you insider tips, tactics, and strategies for creating leveraged streams of cash flow into your life. Learn from top performing entrepreneurs, business owners, investors, and thought leaders from across the globe as they share their secrets to success. Like what you learn on this and other Cashflow Diary podcast episodes? Go to learninvestingnow.com and sign up to receive powerful tips and information that will help you succeed as an entrepreneur and investor. Now, here's your host, investor, entrepreneur, business owner, educator, speaker, author, and master facilitator of Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow Game, Jay Massey. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Diary Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Massey, and I'm glad that you're here today because one of the things that I know is that when you go into business, it's it's exciting, it's fun, it's something that you want, you, you got this idea and you want to see it come to life and actually become of value to, you know, hundreds, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, dare I say millions. And what's interesting is that at some point, you also have to exit. I have a gentleman with me today who's managed to do that not once, but twice. He's been out there in the business world for quite some time. And most importantly, you probably actually have been into or around something that he has touched and you didn't even know it. What do I mean? I mean, I have with me today none other than Gary Hoover. And if you have ever been inside a Barnes & Noble uh, you could say he gave them the baby startup that that was Bookstop that became what we know today. Uh, and he was responsible for selling that to them at a, a very important time, which I think is amazing. Also, I know for myself it was interesting to find out that Hoovers.com, you may remember that site. And many of you who are in sales know that site. Well, he's the Hoover behind Hoover's. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. And that he was able to sell over to Dun and Bradstreet for over $117 million. Here's the point. He knows how to start a business, but he also knows how to finish a business. And most importantly, he knows how to serve people. And he's here to help you and I today. Help me welcome none other than Mr. Gary Hoover. Gary, you there? Yeah, great. Good to talk to you, Jay. Thanks for having me. You are quite welcome. And I am definitely glad that you are here today because I know you have wisdom that will help many of us go out there and become bigger, better, better investors, business owners, and serve more people. Now, this being your first time here, uh, I tend to ask everybody the same question their first time. Are you ready? Absolutely. All right. So I tend to look at today's entrepreneurs a lot like yesterday's superheroes. So, you know, Superman, um, you got Lone Ranger <laughs> to some people. You, you, you've you got all kinds of sure. superheroes today, right? But I think entrepreneurs yeah. and superheroes have a ton of things in common. Chief among them, occasionally we get dressed up. Uh, and we go out there and we use our special abilities to serve customers and save them in, in various forms. But also like superheroes, you know, if you think about Spider-Man for a second, before he was Spider-Man, he was just kind of taking some photos. And entrepreneurs are the same way. Before we go out there and accomplish great things in the world, we have to first realize that we have a superpower and choose to use it. The point is, we have an origin story. So the question to you is, 
before Bookstop, before Hoover's, before all of the, the, the individuals that you are now helping to get started into business and before all the things that you are currently known for, my question to you is, who is Gary Hoover? Uh, yeah, well, that's a, uh, uh, an interesting question, Jay. Uh, my story is that I grew up in a General Motors factory town, uh, Anderson, Indiana, and it had a population of uh, about 60,000 people, and it had 27,000 working at General Motors. And I was in wow. the classroom, and the teachers were talking about leadership and management styles, you know, presidents and colonels and generals and kings and queens and governors and all that. And, you know, how do people make decisions? Why do people follow them? All those things. And I thought, well, this is cool. This is fascinating. And I'd hold up my hand and say, well, what can you tell me about General Motors? They're kind of the gorilla in the room or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and they said, oh, they make Chevrolet, Pontiac, Buick, Olds, Cadillac, GMC truck. I said, no, 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 I know that. We all know that. I said, you know, who started it? Why did they start it? Uh, are they smart people or stupid people? We may assume that people that run giant companies are smart, but we know from Wells Fargo and Enron and bunches of others that they aren't always very smart and, and may not really understand business. If you're old enough to remember the Enron scandals, you know, those people were uh, MBAs from uh, Harvard and Stanford, and, you know, they ended up committing suicide and dying in prison, the CEO did, and so I don't think they ever really understood business. And it was driving me nuts. Nobody could answer my questions. And I was in a newsstand with my family and discovered Fortune, a great business magazine, and their annual list of the 500 biggest U.S. companies, of which GM, General Motors, was the biggest. And, uh, and I saw that list, the 500, and I said, wow, look at all this information, and these people are trying to answer the same questions I'm asking, those writers and editors at Fortune. And I ran to my parents and said, ah, oh, this is the coolest magazine I've ever seen. you got to get me a subscription. And they're like, oh, you weird kid. You know, why, why don't you go play basketball like a normal kid here in Indiana? And anyway, I got my subscription, and two months later, I entered the seventh grade. So I started subscribing to Fortune 53 years ago when I was 12 years old for now, I guess it's 54 years in a row I've grabbed the Fortune 500 and gone down through it. So I got this fascination with business and enterprises of all types, even nonprofits, uh, when I was a little kid. And then within a couple of years of that, I fell in love with retailing and decided that was the industry I would focus my energies on. So I was a, a kind of an odd kid, uh, but and I'm still absolutely fascinated by what makes some businesses successful and others fail and what goes into being a successful entrepreneur or, or a big company. Interesting. I, I, I think to one of the most interesting things or most amazing, I'll call it amazing things of, of what you said is that you somehow living in Indiana did not end up playing basketball. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, and I didn't even go to Indiana University with the great Hoosiers team, but uh, but I sure went to a lot of basketball games, and I still follow it very closely. Yeah, yes, yes. It, it would be almost uh, that would be really weird if you didn't. That 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 would be like really strange. But nonetheless, at age twelve, you're reading Fortune. Um, I'm not even sure. It, it, I don't even understand that. That's unique in and of itself. And so, were there any lessons, like say? Let, let's talk. Let's pretend for a second that someone of a very, very young age, 12, um, is listening. Is there something that you believe that that we could be doing either with our children or our children could be doing that could help them become that entrepreneur by reading magazines like Fortune, even still today? 
Oh, a- absolutely. No, I, I teach. Uh, I was the first entrepreneur in residence at the University of Texas at Austin Business School. Mm-hmm. And But I teach people. I have a special class for high school kids, a four-hour intensive introduction course in entrepreneurial thinking, all, all the way up to uh, executives and CEOs of giant corporations about how to be more innovative. One thing I would say is really is to get people interested in uh, these kind of things young. Uh, overall, our school system just does an awful job of uh, teaching economics and, and business. Uh, they don't get a whole lot of focus uh, until people get to college in most cases. And if there was one thing I'd suggest, it's uh, the best way to get inspired and to learn how it works is to study biography. Uh, most people love studying other people, you know, celebrities and all that. And um, so to take A Made in America, the book by uh, Sam mm-hmm. Walton, uh, or uh, Grinding It Out, the Ray Kroc story, uh, Howard Schultz, the Starbucks guy, his book, uh, uh, Pouring It Out, something like that. Anyway, and those kind of, and the thing is, a Fortune or Forbes or Economist, Wall Street Journal, if you read them right, all they are is like case studies. You know, and people pay whatever, a quarter million dollars to get an MBA at Harvard, and you go up there with a lot of other smart people and professors, and you study case studies. Well, uh, uh, Fortune magazines are a lot cheaper than that, you know, <laughs> and so much is available online. But go deeper, and, and I, I spent a lot of time studying the greats in history, learning from the uh, George Westinghouse. I've been uh, just now reading the biography of George Eastman, the guy that created Kodak and dominated the global photography industry for almost a century. And you, you realize, well, first of all, these people are normal people. Uh, when they start out, you know, they're often very ambitious. They often have high amb- uh, uh, ambition and high energy levels. Uh, they don't give up. They have this incredible persistence, but, but they're also human. They have foibles. None of them are perfect. And even when you study uh, uh, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, they're clearly exceptional individuals, but um, they weren't perfect, you know, and not, not quite Spider-Man, can't quite climb uh, buildings, <laughs> uh, although they may try. Um, so I, I, I definitely think at any age people can get engaged with the stories of the great uh, entrepreneurs and innovators, Thomas Edison, or, or up or through the present. You know, what's interesting about what you've said is that I found myself, uh, after you know starting on my own entrepreneurial journey, uh, that suddenly history actually became something I cared about. Because I remember in <laughs> high school, um, uh, yep. it was by far my worst subject, by like really bad. And yet now when I go, like I'll find myself watching the History Channel or yes, like you said, delving into uh, the books of entrepreneurs of past and understanding and, and trying to understand their motivations and listening and trying to learn the lessons. I find it very interesting though that you said that you you were a, a professor at a, at a university, but yet you're saying that the school system did a horrible job of economics and business. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah. And and uh, I was the entrepreneur in residence, so I was really kind of a guidance counselor okay, uh, sure. to people that want to start businesses. But I also have, have guest lectured, and I teach my own courses. I have a little Hoover Academy here in Austin. Um but uh, but that's at the uh, the college level uh, where I was in, engaged with the University of Texas, and you know you can get all the business education you want in MBA programs and undergraduate business programs. Although I would say that in general, 
they, how do I phrase it, they tend to create carpenters when we need architects. Uh, a lot of the higher level business education like that is so focused on how to do things, you know, how to do great spreadsheets, how to do, you know, information management. Um, and, and they don't really talk about why, or they don't, I mean, you aren't going to sit in many MBA classes and talk about the soul of the entrepreneur and the emotional roller coaster that doing startups is. And when I teach classes, I always kind of hope uh, or uh, think that maybe 15 to 20 percent of people taken will decide not to become entrepreneurs because I'm very realistic about the bad parts of it. And not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur. But I, when I talk about the education system failing, I'm really talking prior to college. And I um, mean, people, um, well, how do I say it nicely? Uh, I, I look at the current election system, you know, uh, Seventy-five percent of what we hear from both parties is economic nonsense. Right. You know? uh, I was blessed to. I had four economics professors in college that later won Nobel prizes. Wow! I went to the University of Chicago and studied under Milton Friedman and all these guys. And um, it wow. isn't rocket science, you know. It, it can be taught, but the average high school graduate knows a lot more about global warming than they know about a profit and loss statement. You said a mouthful right there. Um, and it, with yeah. what, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that I, I now want to, want to ask, but for those that may not be familiar with, and, and I'm going to assume that there's a number of them, uh, if, and I'm going to ask you to do something that's prob, that's definitely not fair to the man, but I, I, I would love for you, to, you know, having been there, uh, to, to be able to try to explain, if you will, uh, who Milton Friedman is and why his ideas are important. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, uh, what, what we would call classical liberalism, if you study the history of the word liberal, uh, that was really in Europe, and then the Americans picked it up, and that really meant a commitment to uh, freedom, freedom of interchange and transactions between people, uh, keeping government uh, uh, out of it, or as little a role as possible in so many ways. So if you really go back to the concept of left and right and politics, that was based on during the French Revolution. The people that were with the king and the royalty in the old system sat on the right side of the aisle, and the people who wanted a whole new way and democracy sat on the left side of the aisle. But one of the key things that the leftists pressed for was to cut regulations of business, because the king and his buddies and the nobles, you know, they set all the rules, and uh, right. they didn't like, if you had Uber and they had a taxi company, you were out of luck. Right. So there's a lot, uh, people use the word liberal differently in the United States today, but what it really means is is, uh, is really a faith in, in the marketplace, letting people make free, voluntary decisions, and of that, the greatest... Um, two greatest economists who developed the theories, it's called the Austrian School, usually, right. were a guy named Friedrich uh, Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, and right. I met old von Mises in his 80s. And then Friedman uh, came along, he was born in like 1912, and he died in the, well, he was in his 90s. I had dinner with him and his wife when they were in their 90s. Uh, I had him in class when I was uh, uh, in my 20s, in co undergraduate in college. But he really was the one of the primary spokespeople, if not the top spokesperson for free market capitalism. And he did a wonderful TV series for PBS around 1980 called Free to Choose. And you can go to freetochoose.net and order the videos. But that still, I meet people all the time who say that changed their lives. Because you, if you either read the book Free to Choose, 
or look at those videos, you'll really understand what real capitalism, which is not crony capitalism, which we see so much of today, but real true free markets, um, how wonderful and powerful they are and how they've really, they're the reason that, um, that we're so wealthy uh, on a relative basis, that uh, the prosperity of, uh, of Europe and Japan and uh, most of all the United States, um, the, the, the degree to which uh, true free markets and capitalism have really lifted billions of people out of poverty and continue to do so in India and China today now that they've given up on their false gods of, um, hmm. uh, well, in part, communism and socialism. You know, it's rarely black and white. There's a lot of gray right. there, but it's very complex. But Deng, D-E-N-G, the guy who um, turned China into a capitalist place, uh, you know, I'm amazing what he did and the billions of people that have been helped by it. And he's he's long dead now, but his effects are still going. I've blogged about that on my website, Hoover's World, about what a great leader he was and the courage it took to... Uh, allow the Chinese people to be more free. They still have a ways to go. Right, right. Indeed, indeed. Now, there's something that you mentioned that I, <laughs> only because you mentioned it, I'm like, I'm gonna have to go down here because I want to make sure that everyone who's listening follows uh, why you, these things are, are, are incredibly important, how they affect us as an entrepreneur today, whether we're doing real estate, whether we're trying, you know, we've got a new idea or for just a way to make spoons. It doesn't really, really matter. But the, could you expound a bit on just because some people may not fully understand the the challenge that could be presented to itself, that is presented to the United States economy for sure, when we start talking about things like crony capitalism and how that can be a challenge for progress. Yeah, you know, uh, Jay, it's when I look at entrepreneurs, um, ultimately, entrepreneurs prevail. I mean, the successful ones, and of course, uh, it, it, it's a struggle, and the odds are against you. You know, if you want the odds in your favor, you may be better off going to work for the man or for a big company, which which is great, too. We need we need a lot better leaders at big companies, too. But I, I find overall, uh, entrepreneurs, part of entrepreneurship is being uh, uh, adaptable. And so, because I, I've been to 45 countries uh, uh, teaching entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs, and I go to these countries not nearly as wealthy as the United States, and, and the, the regulations and the issues and the corruption they have to deal with, we can't even imagine the United States. And yet, I meet people all over the world, and they just press on. They have their idea. Sometimes it takes years two years to start a new company in some countries, whereas in Dubai, I believe it's either 24 or 48 hours to go through all the paperwork to create a company. Um, and there are lots of things you can't imagine. Uh, um, like, and I think it's in Brazil, if you lay off somebody or fire somebody, you have to pay them like one or two years wages. So nobody starts. It's harder to start a company because you can't crank it down. And that's part of entrepreneurship too. You should be able to close up and give up, you know, I, I hate doing that. And yeah, I hope it doesn't happen to you, uh, our listeners. But, um, and so when we look at the United States, even though a lot of the regulations drive me nuts, there's a huge amount of stupidity. We're still uh, in a relatively good shape, but anything we could do to have less regulation, to give the Ubers and Airbnbs of the world more freedom and let people make up their own minds, the stronger and better off we'll all be and, and the richer is a society in every regard. So I still promote that. But I, because uh, I've heard some entrepreneurs and small business owners say, oh, I'm, 
I can't handle these regulations anymore. You know, I'm giving up. And uh, right next to him, down the road, there's going to be another entrepreneur in the same industry that says, well, I don't care how evil they are. I'm not giving up, you know. <laughs> and they're the ones that are going to persist. So I would never use it as an excuse to uh, to duck out. But, boy, it can give you headaches. And in the real estate business, certainly I have a lot of friends in commercial real estate. And, you know, here Austin is a very regulated city. You go 20 miles outside the city, and it's far less regulated than the the rest of Texas, you know, right. but man, the nightmares I hear about the uh, the city officers giving you six different answers that are opposites about what your building has to be like, <laughs> and then, you know, oh, it'll take us a year and a half to review that plan, or, yeah. you know, it's just nuts, um, yeah. and it's one reason housing is high in Austin, but you go to a city like Chicago with uh, huge regulations on housing construction, and, you know, even if the land is free, you can't build an affordable house in most uh, in a lot of those places like the city of Chicago, which city I really love, but I wish it was easier for people to afford houses when you have almost free land in some of those really rough parts of that city. Well, and you're, you're touching on a number of things because oftentimes people ask me, like me personally, I, I, because a business is built on systems, we choose to deploy our systems in various locations throughout the United States. Uh, chief among them, I live in California, but I choose to do business in mostly other states simply because doing so in California is just more expensive to provide the exact same type and quality of service as it would be, say, in a state like Georgia or Tennessee or Colorado or almost any other state that's not New York, Hawaii, uh, Connecticut, uh, Maryland, D.C., <laughs> you know. Uh, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. And that's why when you look at the um, population data, people are flooding out of California. Now, its population overall has been relatively maintained because so many immigrants from other countries pour into California. But as far as the domestic population, and Illinois is just bleeding people, and even the big universities are losing their professors because the state is so screwed up financially and the tax thing and pensions. And on the other hand, people are pouring into Texas. I got here, as we say, as fast as I could, moved here 34 years ago, and it would be difficult for me to um, consider living anywhere else. Although, as you say, the, I mean, the South is still a uh, much more fluid place. Florida, I think, has a great future. And, and I like to say most of the states, but those economic policies, those regulatory policies, those have a real effect on people. And obviously taxes, whether it's income or real estate, those people get up and move. You know, they vote with their feet. Um, <laughs> like I've had that. people talk to me. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said, well, and I was talking like I always do about how much I love Texas. He said, yeah, but, you know, Texas is 41st in this welfare program or, or whatever, you know, that and, and Illinois, where we both lived, uh, oh, they've got much better stuff and all that. And I said, so why did, whatever it was, 300,000 people leave um, Illinois in the last five years? Or when I looked up the data, you know, and, and whatever it was, uh, 500,000 move into Texas. And I said, look, they vote with their feet. I said, if you were poor and out of work, would you rather live in a state that had great welfare systems or would you rather live in a state that had lots of jobs? And all you have to do is look at the numbers to see what people really decide. Yes, and for everyone listening, this is why I've always constantly said, for those of you looking to do the long-term real estate, you are ultimately a job chaser. Find the things that create the jobs that cannot just be outsourced, but that can't be 
offshored, especially if you are trying to invest inside the United States. Texas has done a great job uh, at doing so, and that's why you hear a lot about it. So with that being said, I mean, we've br- we're bringing up a whole bunch of the things. I mean, we, we probably just made somebody say, you know what? This entrepreneurship thing is for the bag. <laughs> it's for the birds. I'm done. <laughs> I'm just, just in our own conversation, we're not even trying. And that wasn't even like what we were trying to talk about. But it does bring up the question, with so many things being fluid, because you mentioned the Ubers, you mentioned the Airbnbs, and there's offshoots of opportunity from the, you know, from those big unicorns in and of themselves. It it brings the question: uh, Who is cut out to be an entrepreneur? How do you know? Oh boy, you know, I don't think um, I don't think you can really tell because I don't think entrepreneurs are born. As I say, they're grown. Um, when I talk and I I mentor people taking my classes stuff, get free lifetime twenty four seven email support. So I mentor mentor thousands of entrepreneurs on uh, I guess every continent. And and I always say when I meet people and I hear their business ideas and I talk to them uh, about them and try to help. Uh, of all the people, it's like a normal distribution of you know with the long tails and all that. And about five percent of all the people I meet are what I call fundamentally entrepreneurial. And that's uh, first or second generation immigrants. And they're people that, and I'm normally talking to people in their teens and 20s, when I have that feeling, they couldn't do anything but be an entrepreneur. Often when they sat around the dinner table, you know, mom owned a convenience store and dad owned a motel or something. And that's all they ever heard. Nobody ever sat around and said, oh, it'd be great to go to work for McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or Procter & Gamble. Um, you know, and they, and they will, they may fail, uh, uh, they can have all different types of personality attributes and, you know, different IQ scores or whatever, but they may fail over and over. They more likely will ultimately succeed because they don't have any choice. They'll just keep trying until they figure something out and experimenting. And that's about 5% of people who, who really couldn't do much else. About 5% of the people I talk to are born bureaucrats and really need to sit Hmm. behind a desk and follow rules and, could never be an entrepreneur. But in my opinion, the big chunk in the middle, 85, 90%, whatever it is, people can learn to become more entrepreneurial. They can learn to think more entrepreneurially by studying these biographies, by reading the case studies of companies, by uh, taking the right classes or, or reading all my stuff on my website, you know? <laughs> and so I, I really believe that and, and because it covers a waterfront, because I, I just led a group of 15 of the top executives of one of the biggest semiconductor makers in the world, and they realize they're not as entrepreneurial as they need to be, not as innovative. And and those people can learn to be. Um, and at the other extreme, I got 14-year-old kids that got business ideas and um, how you can encourage them and, and help them through the rough spots and the the big ideas are timeless. You know, we get so caught up in what's the latest news and, oh, here's what's hot today, and i got to start a unicorn, if you know about all that nonsense, right. where the venture capitalists want to back something that becomes worth a billion dollars or more. And a lot of that's just fluff, just like foam on the surface of the ocean, whereas we really need to look underneath, you know. And when an earthquake happens, uh, yeah, you need to know about it. It's in the news, but the real thinker, the real entrepreneur needs to look at what they call plate tectonics, which is the motion of the plates under the Earth's surface that causes those earthquakes and tsunamis and all this jazz, you know. So um, uh, 
No, I, I think the vast majority of people can become more entrepreneurial and free up their thinking and learn how to how to become innovators. Indeed, indeed. So let's talk for a second about your journey. So you're you're twelve reading Fortune. How do we go yep. from that to Bookstop and then to Hoover's? How does that work? Something important to understand is that where you start in business isn't necessarily where you stay. You should grow. You'll never out-earn your personal growth, and personal growth is part of the process. So whether that means today you're a solopreneur and then tomorrow you, you've got your first person on board or or you're working right now and your company's at the 40, 50, 100s mark, whatever, the point is it's a reflection of your growth. It should be something we're all striving for, and hopefully you hear that and what today's guest is sharing and saying to you. One of the ways that we grow is through adversity. If you want to get an understanding of some of the adversity that has been overcome by entrepreneurs like myself, feel free to pick up a copy of my book, Cashflow Diary, 10 Steps to Creating Wealth in Any Economy. Consume chapter one in its entirety, and you might feel a little bit better about some of the things that you are going through right now in order to overcome and become the hope you want to see. So with that being said, just go over to cashflowdiary.com forward slash free book. Again, cashflowdiary.com forward slash free book, name and email, and we'll get you fixed right on up. Now, let's get back to Gary. Yeah, yeah. You know, the big thing there was that by uh, well, I think uh, eighth grade, whatever that would have been, 13 or 14, I guess, something. Um, uh, my term paper for some class was the life story of Marshall Field, who was the greatest um, merchant at a big department store company in Chicago. And I just became fascinated by retailing. It's a very um, visceral, you can touch it. You know, I'm talking mm-hmm. bricks and mortar retailing when I was going through that stage. Uh, has a huge effect on humans' lives. I mean, of, of all the things we do, you can go all over the world, and everybody goes to bodegas or convenience stores, or you know, and most people go to WalMarts and Costco's and Macy's, and all the way from Nordstrom's down to Family Dollar and Goodwill stores. But uh, retailing and restaurants, hotels, human service businesses, and I start studying all the biographies of the greats, and uh, I love architecture because that's a big part of retailing and store design. I love geography. I love picking which city to go next to next, uh, which markets are rising, which markets are falling, and why. It's a lot of what I teach, and I, I wrote about. In my, I wrote a book, um, and so retailing just seen, and, and I love all that stuff. I mean, I define a merchant as someone who loves the merchandise and loves the customers. And when you build a great retail company like some of the ones of the past, Radio Shack, which is now almost gone, unfortunately, but uh, Toys R Us, uh, right. 7-Eleven, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, you know they, they really loved the stuff they sold and they understood how to connect it with customers. And, and of course, I studied the great ones today. I served uh, almost five years on the board of directors of Whole Foods Market, one of Austin's greatest companies. And there's a company they were doing $10 million a year. When I first uh, met them, they had one store, and last year, what they do, $14, 15000000000 billion, still under the same uh, leadership, a lot of the same people. So I fell in love with retailing, and then I decided, well, I've got to learn how to do it, you know? So I read everything I could. At 14, 15, I'm dropping in every retail store, Sears and Penny and Kmart, and asking to meet the manager. I go into independent stores and ask to meet the owner, interview them. 
studied economics at the University of Chicago, worked two years on Wall Street as a stock analyst covering retailing. So there I am, 22 years old, and I fly all over the country and meet the CEOs of all these retailers and ask them what I thought were hard questions and learn more. And then I realized I had to really get my hands dirty and really understand the industry because I also saw that a lot of people on Wall Street don't deeply understand it. So I got a Greyhound bus pass. It was before cheap airfares and set up 13 <laughs> interviews with department stores around the U.S. to become a buyer. The people that pick the merchandise because that's really the guts uh, in many ways. Everybody's important, but that's critically important to a retailer like a big department store. And back then, this is the 1970s, the department stores were the best place to learn. The company that's now called Macy's was called Federated Department Stores, and that's where I went to work as a buyer in their Dallas operation. And there I learned from some of the best people you ever could. And after a couple of years of that, I got hired away by a competitor, the May Department Stores Company, which owned the May Company in Southern <laughs> California, a huge operation there. Yeah. I spent five years there, and I made sure that I learned real estate, Yep. Uh, retail real estate, because I didn't know that. I had already learned merchandising at Federated. I'd learned advertising. I'd learned financial analysis on Wall Street. But I made sure and learned all the major skills that I thought I needed to create a retail chain. And and I've written in my book, and I talk at great length about how I dreamed up the idea of Bookstop. I can talk about that now if you want. But, By uh, all means. And, and that's what I did. Yeah, yeah and, and that's – see, what I like about what you're saying right there is – in each of those, we'll call them stations or, or opportunities or, or jobs even, you, you didn't take the job for the sake of having a job. You were taking it with an end goal in mind and trying to learn something from each one of them. And it was it seems to me to be very strategic. I mean, uh, this is obviously before the the Internet and the ability to have access to the, the information in, in a different way that, that, that we do today. Uh, so th it sounded like you had a master plan at a, at a very young age. Is that would that be accurate? Yeah, a absolutely. Now I knew I wanted to be in retailing, and I, and they're probably I'm not sure when I decided I wanted to start my own. But one of the things, the more you study retailing, and then when you go and work in it, is I believe that anybody really understands the field understands that there is always. Uh, an advantage to the smaller operator that knows their customer better. The big chains can become removed from the customer. And and then the other thing, working for the big companies, I always say I love working for those three big companies I worked for. And I learned so much, and I had wonderful teachers, mentors, bosses. Uh, but about half of what I learned was stuff, man, I'll never do this. You know, they really screw this up. And about <laughs> half was, wow, they have this nailed. Right. I mean, what I learned about how to do a pro forma projection on a project and whether it would pay off or not, and how to do your expense projections. I, man, I, I was light years ahead. It was my MBA, really. I uh, never got an MBA, but working for those three companies over a period of nine years, that was my graduate education. Um, and like I say, other things, I said, man, there's just too much bureaucracy, and it's easy to forget the customer and get caught, trip over your own feet with internal politics or worrying about the competition, which I'm always very aware of the competition but I don't make knee-jerk reactions to their actions like a lot of retailers do. So, um, now I, you know, Michael Dell here in, in my hometown, uh, you know, he dropped out of college to start a company, and I say, well, you know, that's one way to do it. I said, but, boy, there's a lot to be said for if, if you can pick an industry you're passionate about and you love when you're young, and then go learn from the best. And, and at that point, it was federated department stores. Today, you know, I'd probably say, um, uh, CVS, Home Depot, TJX, uh, Target, Walmart, 
uh, I would go there instead of um, Macy's in, in, in most cases. Or if you want to do um, uh, fashion uh, Nordstrom's, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Whole Foods would be a great place to learn how to be a retailer. That's a wonderful company. So, um, yeah, I, and I also believe no matter what, whether you go off and work for companies and learn from the best uh, or however um, you learn, it's really about uh, uh, curiosity understanding the industry, what I call doing your homework. So many people come to me with business ideas. I remember one uh, woman came up after a talk and said, I want to do like a healthy uh, food, fast food place. And I've seen several business lines along those lines over the years. And I said, well, that's, that might have a potential, you know, kind of like what Whole Foods did in the grocery business. I said, so, um, you know, uh, have you read uh, Ray Kroc? And she said, well, who's Ray Kroc? And like, oh, oh man, you're, you're years away from being ready to go. And and because somebody like that may say, well, I don't want to read McDonald's. You know, that's the worst kind of food. No, that's no, that's crazy. I mean, nobody understood how to create a large food service organization in American history than Ray Kroc. And there there are others out there too worth studying the uh, the Wendy's guy, the Chick Fil A people, and and people that also non fast food people that built. Sure. You know, uh, Marriott was a huge player in the restaurant business before they finally decided the hotel business is more profitable. And Denny's and all those guys. If you go back to their, you know, their their glory days, uh, Howard Johnson's, if you're old enough, was the biggest restaurant chain in America for years, and their their story was amazing. So I, I call it doing your homework. Trying to, I teach one three hour course how to become an expert in any company or industry. And as you say, with the internet, it's much easier than when I was doing it with big old fat printed books I had to buy from the government <laughs> and dig up, although I still believe in books. Right. I live in right. a library with 57,000 books. I live in a one-bedroom, 8,500-square-foot house. So I'm, I'm an information uh, junkie. Indeed. Uh, how much can I, what can I learn today? And that is why I picked those jobs. I said, where can I go to learn the most? That's one of my three, I think, three key criteria when picking who to go to work for if you are going to go to work for a large company. Mm-hmm. You've got to believe in their mission and what they're doing. You can't be a person that comes away, well, the company really sucks, and I hate everything they do, you know, but they pay me well. I mean, you don't want to be that person. You know, you want to find somebody you believe in. You want to try to find some place where you have some sort of chemistry with the person you're going to work for, although in a big company they can, you know, get a promotion two weeks after you start and you got a new boss. Uh, but then where where can you learn the most? Every night, ask yourself, what have I learned today? Got it. Now, you do realize, I don't know if you've, uh, you, you said Anderson, Indiana had a population of like 60,000. You almost have a book for, almost have a book yep. for each person. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I, I bet you. I always, uh, I think uh, if I keep buying books, uh, I'll, when I die, I'll have a bigger library than the Anderson Public Library. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, no. It's it's uh, way too many books. It's crazy. Yeah, that's On awesome. every subject imaginable. I can, I can only imagine at this point. Now, you, you mentioned uh, a, a couple of things in, and in, in a couple of places that you've been, uh, talk for a second, because uh, there's a number of people I know who, you know, maybe they are, they found themselves in a position and they have entrepreneurial aspirations. However, developing the courage to actually leave the familiar behind is is, oh, is yeah. a challenge, but yet you you did it. So where, where do you think that courage came from? No, you know, for me, I really believe it came from the confidence from doing the research. When I dreamed up Bookstop, 
the big bookstore chains were uh, B. Dalton and Walden Books, and they averaged around a half a million dollars per year in revenue per store. Uh, B. Dalton was, uh, ran higher numbers than Walden Books for, say, half a million. And uh, the idea of the superstore, uh, specialty store in one category, big selection, low prices, well, that was pioneered by Charles Lazarus with Toys R Us. Came out of the Washington, D.C. area in the late 50s, and then he headquartered in, in uh, uh, New Jersey. But there was no Home Depot, there was no Staples, there was no Bed Bath & Beyond, you know. And, and I saw that concept, and I said, man, if that works in toys, that ought to work in books. And nobody believed me. I couldn't convince the venture capitalist mm. or anything. But from the time I decided that was a great idea, till I had the courage to go out and raise the money, convince people to move to Austin. I moved to Austin from St. Louis at that time. Uh, it was seven years. So I did seven years of homework and research. By the time I'm five or six years into the seven years, man, I had my numbers nailed. I said, look, here's the baby boom. Here's how they're going to age. We know that. We know that they're going to have kids, and we know they're the best educated generation in American history so far. They also be lifelong readers. We know as people's income rise, they spend more money on reading and books. And, you know, I had all that government data. And then I said, well, look, you got this old school, just like Toys R Us took on old little toy stores, and this is a time. And we opened up, and the venture capitalist said, I had to do a million a year, first year, first store, to break even because of the lower prices and a bigger store, much bigger selection. And every venture capitalist laughed at me. I couldn't raise the three, three to five million to open in Chicago. I had to come to a smaller city, came to Austin, raised three hundred fifty thousand dollars from thirty-five grave souls at like ten grand each. And we opened up. We had to do a million to break even. My projection was one point four million. We did one point eight the first year, wow. and within I think about five years, we were averaging three million dollars a store. Within wow. seven years from founding, we stretched from Miami to San Diego, and that's when the big guys realized, wow. Farms and Oloa, to be frank, they spent $300 million to buy B. Dalton, which was on the downside of its life cycle. And they later closed up the whole chain and wrote off the $300 million. They bought us for $41.5 million, and that was really the nugget. They saw the change coming. They were beginning to experiment a little bit with big stores, but when they bought us, they bought this coast-to-coast across the Sunbelt group and took the management team and moved them to New York and... Um, and and then over time they evolved it. They added the coffee shop. They added the more mahogany look. And really, I still it's a Barnes and Noble is really a great company and runs great stores. Uh, but the kind of the nugget I have the idea of hey we can we don't have to be in Manhattan to have a bookstore of fifty thousand titles. We can put one of these in suburban Houston. Nobody would have believed that. So there's your bookstop story. Well, what I but like a lot of agony, a lot of near misses. Uh, having investors Federal Express checks to cover payroll, man, I've I've seen it all, and I've been broke. I lost all I, I lost all my money on my third venture, so um, you know it's uh, it's not simple. And and I never wanted to sell any of the companies I started. If an investor asked, well, if you sold it, who would you sell it to? I always have names in mind that would be a good fit. But I never got into a business wanting to get out of it. And it's a little different in real estate. You're doing residential, and it's a portfolio business. Obviously, you have to exit them. But I'm very wary. I've never written an exit strategy in a business plan, and I urge my students to not to do it either. Um, we've gotten too caught up in building things to flip them uh, when it's supposed to be a real enterprise that serves people. And I'm kind of like, well, why would you get into it if you wanted to get out of it? That doesn't mean you don't sell it. All my companies got sold because the minute you take other people's money, you have a responsibility to them. 
and they all invest because they want to pay for their uh, kids' weddings and put kids through college and all these reasons. So when the right price comes along, but but if you keep your company private, you know, you bootstrap it all the way. I have a, lot of, a, a number of friends who have done that. And then right. you still, the key is build a great enterprise. Make it valuable to society. If that's true, you will have all the options in the world to sell it, to take it public, to keep it, and make your great-grandkids billionaires, you know. Uh, build a great company. Don't get caught up in um, and the VCs get so caught up sometimes in printing up a company. Oh, well, let's not spend money this year because our earnings will pop and we can sell it for a higher price. But you're, you know, you're cutting the legs. You're not building for the future. Wow. You know, one of the things that's come obvious to me is that you, you have a ton of, of, of not just theory, but actual out there practical knowledge that because of all the things that you have been through. And I, I'm going to take a stab and say that there's a number of individuals listening right now who who are realizing the exact same thing. And because we, we haven't talked about Ubers, we haven't talked about, if I'm not mistaken, you've got some, you, you have interests inside of some games on, on mobile devices. You, you, yes. you've, you've got a number of things going on. So before we, we get to our final question, do me a favor. How, how can we find out more about what you're doing and what you've got going on and continue our, our learning education from you? Uh, yeah, the best thing is go to hooversworld.com, and that has everything. I offer a, a, a class in person in Austin, but I've just put up its um, 18 hours of my uh, I, uh, thoughts and all the business history and how to think entrepreneurially. And that, it's an uh, you can buy um, the audio course for like $149. That's, uh, uh, you'll see a link on Hoover's World. And I've written two books, uh, one about entrepreneurship in general, it's like 10 bucks, and one on retailing and specifically, uh, like a big, thick book, uh, it's like 30 bucks. So a lot of ways to do that. I can always be emailed. There's a contact me button on there. Um, and then I, I have done, I'm on my ninth startup, if you start the three in college. But some have worked, some haven't. We've, we've talked about the two most successful ones. Um, but I tend to do them sequentially. I mean, I don't believe... Uh, for most people, you can't do two or three things at the same time well. My Hoover's rule is your success will be inversely proportional to the square of the number of projects you're working on. So if you're working on two things, you'll be one-fourth as successful. You're working on three things, you'll be one-ninth as successful, and so on. Um, and and there are a few exceptions. There are always exceptions. But most of the great people, hey, Bill Gates was totally focused on how do I build Microsoft for most of his life. Steve Jobs gave his life to Apple, you know? And but you can go to any industry, and uh, the greats are very focused. Really great in one industry, probably would have been a failure in any other industry. Most of them have a real expertise or love. I mean, the, the people that built Walmart could not have built Microsoft. Uh, Bill Gates could not have built Federal Express. Fred Smith, the greatest living, active American entrepreneur, in my not so humble opinion, who built Federal Express. You know, he could not have built Microsoft or Disney World. You know. Uh, most of the greats. And when they do change, like Bill Gates moving from a software wizard to a philanthropic wizard, he did it sequentially. Um, so uh, limit what you're focused on. Having said that, I've moved from one to the next. I have this curiosity. I love all these industries. I've dabbled in the uh, internet uh, online game. It's a business a simulation game. It's the best restaurant simulation game called uh, restaurant bigwig and it's available on the ipad um 
I've, I've done a lot of stuff. I'm really interested in the museum industry, which has a great future, uh, especially for-profit museums. So I have a big idea there called the Spark, and you can find it on the web or email me. Or if you go down through Hoover's World, you'll see articles on all this different stuff. Awesome! I am so excited that you are are who you are. Uh, it, it's it's I I don't know. I, when I get excited, I start stuttering, and I'm just like I, I'm just like really excited <laughs> to hear you. Uh, it's very very nice of you. All I can tell is, Daniel, if you stick around long enough and try enough things, man, sooner or later you learn how to do it. Although I always say, entrepreneurship is a lifelong journey of self discovery. At the age of sixty five, every day I learn. Uh, flaws I have that I may not have known I had, and and once in a while I get lucky and uh, I find I'm good at something. Um, but you know, and and you have to take joy in that that the idea that you're in continual growth. Hey, to sit there and say I'm really smart, that's just as bad on yourself as saying I'm really stupid, because that's what we call a static, fixed state of mind. Mm. The the powerful minds, people who change the world, have a growth mindset, and that's all about am I smarter today than I was yesterday. You know, am, am I moving ahead? Am I learning? Am I growing? And the day somebody gets to, oh, I know it all, I have all the answers. I mean, I run into people like that all the time. Hey, they're they're dead. I don't care if their IQ is 200. I don't care if they're billionaires. You know, they're, right. they're not in motion. There's a great book called Mindset by Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, and it really goes into this difference between the growth mindset and the fixed or static mindset, and that's a, a key thing I teach in my classes. Got it, got it. So as, as we wind down here, I've got a final question for you because here, here's sure. what I also know about those that are listening, and and I'm assuming those that have probably been in your classes and and, and, and you know uh, and just participating in some various way. So uh, let's pretend for a second, if you will, that there's a. Uh, person listening who and they're they're standing in front of what I would call the superhero outfit store. They think they want to try this entrepreneurship thing on. Uh, but yet they're still deciding, you know, what cape should I wear? Do I wear a mask? What does it look like? And you know, they're they're excited about that, but at the same time, in the back of their mind they have that voice. And I know it's a voice you have dealt with. It's that voice that comes up anytime we as humans try to step into a place that's bigger than our present place, becoming more, offering more value. It it says things like who do who are you to do those great things? And for some people, they're actually related to that voice. So my my question to you is if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the individual listening would actually follow through on the advice that you would share with them, and they would do so in the next 24 to 48 hours, what would you suggest that they do? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I, I'm so focused on the specifics. You know, what industry you're in and where, what stage are you at? Because, you know, it, it's a, a, an evolution of, oh, I got this idea Go talk to a bunch of people. Do you think they'll like this idea? You've got to convince yourself that you're really passionate about it, and you're really going to have the persistence to stick to it. In this. And that's one reason when people do stuff just to get rich, that usually isn't strong enough. It really takes some, for most people, a higher goal, or, man, I'm going to change the world with Uber. And that doesn't mean they don't want to get rich, too, but mm-hmm. so are you passionate about it? And then are people really going to love it? And that gets really tricky. Some things... Uh, you can go out and talk to 100 customers. If you have a very specific thing, like, oh, this will help gas stations, this this new software, whatever it is. And and then you go talk to 100 gas stations. That's great. You know, they call it market validation. But on the other hand, 
uh, as Henry Ford is reported to have said, but apparently never said, uh, but, but I think the, the logic fits with him, is he said, if I asked my uh, customers what they wanted, I would have given them a faster horse. You know, a lot, nobody on earth sat around and said, I can't live another day without Federal Express. Nobody on earth sat around and said, I can't live another day without an iPad. Nobody on earth sat around and said, I can't live another day without a giant bookstore. I'm doing fine with B. Dalton and Walden books. So the bolder the idea, the harder it is to ask people. But then you have to kind of, kind of interpolate or extrapolate or whatever. So, like, I knew they loved Toys R Us, and books aren't that much different from toys in terms of the nature of the product and the size and the price points. And I said, ah, I bet if they love Toys R Us, which was a huge success already by the time I was doing my research, um, they're going to like Bookstop, you know? And so it takes work. And then, and then my next question is, is anyone else doing it? Because the last thing you want to do is be redundant. And I see so many business plans, I, and, and they, I say, is anybody doing it? I don't think so. Well, they haven't done their research. Ten seconds later, I'm on my, my, my tablet, my Samsung tablet, one that doesn't explode, though. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, there, and I'm like, wait a minute, here's five companies that do Oh, well, their website's green, and mine's going to be orange, or whatever. And no, no, if you can't really bring something new to the party, a true innovation, or, or do it in a different way, now maybe you find out, oh, they're doing it, but they're only doing it in Thailand. Nobody's doing it in the United States. So that's good news. So maybe you can learn from the one in Thailand, you know. But working through all that, because a lot of people start out with, where can I make the most money? And you can't really know that. Most of these great ideas, I talked to the people who built Home Depot once or heard a, a talk, and when they opened, they thought Atlanta, where they came out of, could hold up again. I think it was four Home Depots, all their studies. And I don't know what Atlanta's got now, maybe 40 of them. Almost, almost all great ideas turn out to be far bigger potential than even the dreamer thought they were. Uh, I don't know what the Whole Foods people would have expected. I knew it could be a national chain. I knew they were bright. They weren't perfect, but they were learning and studying, and they love, they're, you know, they're obsessed. They're house foods nuts. They're obsessed with natural and organic foods and have been since they were teenagers. So I knew they could get big, but, man, I I don't think it would have been on $15 billion, you know. So, uh, you know, and, and doing that research, that gives you that confidence to uh, – to move ahead. So uh, learn, man. Google deep. I tell people, okay, you think you want to be in this industry, so go Google for like three or four hours and, you know, go into page 10 of Google and look at every trade association, every trade publication website. Go to the industry convention. But if you go and I say Google three hours and they're looking at the clock and say, okay, I've Googled two and a half hours. I only got a half hour to go. Well, you shouldn't go anywhere near that industry. If on the other end you've Googled for eight hours and you miss the time and the sun's coming up and you didn't even realize it. You're so engaged with what you're learning and enjoying it. Well, that's, you can measure your passion and that's, that's passion and curiosity, man. If you've got those two things, the, all the other steps that I write about and suggest and everything can fall into place. Awesome answer. Love it 100%. I definitely uh, appreciate the, the time and energy that you've devoted, the passion that you, you still clearly have uh, for for business and, and helping entrepreneurs and, and being one yourself. And I definitely want to thank you for taking the time to invest with us here at the Cashflow Diary. Well, Jay, it's been uh, great to talk to, uh, to you. You've had uh, some of the most interesting and best questions I've been asking in a long time. I've been asked a lot. So anything I can do to help any of your listeners, they can always reach out to me. 
ideas. I, I just love talking, and I'm fascinated by every industry. I love real estate. I love lodging. I've studied semiconductors. Uh, there's virtually no industry that I haven't uh, looked into, so I, I just get a lot of uh, personal satisfaction from uh, seeing others uh, grow and develop and uh, try to make the world we all share a better place. Indeed. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's time for you to move at the speed of instruction. What does that mean today? It means you got a lot of homework to do. I don't know if you were paying attention, but there was book after book. Now, I don't expect you to catch up to his 57,000 book library, but there's at least one that you heard of that you should be following. And if nothing else, go over to hooversworld.com. Why? Because you know when you've heard from someone you can learn from. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, we can learn a lot from today's guest. It's been fun talking to you guys today. I look forward to talking to you soon. Until next time.